Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news for you listeners, all of our episodes are now available on the TuneIn app. All the episodes available there five days early. So download the TuneIn app and listen for free. Hey guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. I am really excited to say here in the studio joining us today, we have Abdul El Said. He is the Democratic candidate for the governor of Michigan. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you could stand to make history. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. Obviously, you've gotten a lot of coverage over this because if you win, not only will you be one of the youngest governors uh, in the history of our country, you would be the very first Muslim governor ever in the history of these United States of America, which is a pretty big deal. And I want to talk about it. But first, we like to hear people's superhero origin story. I want to know about you, where you grew up, how you grew up. Tell me about your family. Yeah, uh, I was born and raised in Metro Detroit Mm -hmm. in Michigan. My father, uh, his father was a vegetable salesman. His mother was uh, the most incredible, intelligent, wisest person I've ever met, Mm -hmm. uh, but never got to go to school. She was illiterate. And um, they raised six kids in a one-bedroom apartment overlooking the fish market where my my grandfather sold vegetables every day. And my dad was the oldest of six to them, and he knew that he wanted a very different path than the one that his father had walked. And Mm so... Uh, he built that path for himself studying, right? He would uh, start his days every day putting up the stall where my grandfather would sell vegetables. And then uh, he would go to school with his classmates. He'd come back to break down the stall just to put it up again the next day. Um, and he would actually, by the time they would finish with the stall, the sun would have gone down. So I actually studied every day on the rooftop of their building. There was a, a lamplight just across the street. And so that's how he'd study every day because his five brothers and sisters were sleeping downstairs. Wow. Um, and he came to this country back in 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, because he got the opportunity to do uh, a a paid-for PhD program at Wayne State University in Detroit. And actually, he was between going to Detroit and Bayreuth, Germany. Um, Really? Yeah. And he chose to come to the United States because, uh, per our founding documents, this was the place that he could uh, be just as American as anybody else, independent of the color of his skin, the way he prayed, the the way his name sounded. Um, And so he chose to to come here and and built, built the life that I... Uh, now get to, 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 I'm very privileged to benefit from. And so he came here, <clears throat> ended up uh, finishing his PhD, met my uh, mother back when he was back in Egypt mm-hmm. uh, for a summer. They got married in a month. And uh, turns out by the time they got back to the United States, they realized they really only had two things in common, uh, their Egyptianness yeah. and, uh, and the fact that they'd conceived a child, who was me. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they say, I was a a one-hit wonder for that couple. Um, <laughs> and so they both got divorced and remarried. Okay. And uh, my dad remarried uh, a woman by the name of Jackie from a place called Gratchit County, Michigan. And so... Uh, where you know, is that in Michigan? We, we love to show people where we are yeah. in our hands. So okay. it's literally in the middle. Right, smack dab in the middle. Okay. The heartland of Michigan. Okay. Uh, her family's been in this part of the world since before the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's a certifiable daughter of the Revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, her parents have, have... Her family has been in Gratchit County now for five generations. They are teachers and small business owners and farmers. Uh, and so the house that I grew up in was the house that was built by Muhammad and Jackie. Um, so that was for most of your childhood? <clears throat> when did they remarry? How old so, were you? Uh, I was three. You and three, and okay. I lived with uh, my father and my stepmother from, from when I was three. So I yeah. uh, got to be raised in just an incredibly multi-ethnic, multi-faith household. And uh, you know, now I, 
I always joke uh, about Thanksgiving at my house, hmm. uh, which includes my dad, uh, who alongside being a, uh, an engineer and professor, uh, is also a part-time imam. He leads prayers in various mosques in southeast Michigan. Okay. My grandma, who uh, is a nurse who trained in Flint, where she grew up, mm-hmm. and um, she's also a deacon at her Presbyterian church alongside okay. my grandfather, and I actually lived with them while I was in college at Michigan. Yeah. Uh, two of the most important people in my life. And, um, and then my uncle, who uh, immigrated under various, very similar circumstances to my father yeah. from a very different part of the world. Uh, he's Polish, ethnically. So um, he's also an avowed atheist. And so you've got this... Uh, just multi-ethnic, multi-faith uh, house that um, that I was really privileged to grow up in. And, uh, you know, my parents knew um, that, that for both of them, education was really important yeah. and um, really invested big time in that for us. I mean, they used to drive each... Uh, an hour to and from work, uh, so that we could. So you go said to you were raised in a multi-faith home. Though your mother is still a Christian. <clears throat> no, my, my mother is, is is Muslim. She's she, converted. She, uh, okay. she converted uh, before she met my father. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know my, my grandparents, with whom I'm really close, and, yeah. and my uncle, and, and a number of other folks. You know, multiple different faiths uh, represented in the broader family. And you have siblings as well. I do. Um, yeah. So on my mother's side, I have I have uh, two sisters okay. and well, two half sisters technically, and. Uh, a stepbrother, and mm-hmm. on my father's side, I have uh, a brother and a sister. So your roots run deep in Detroit. It's very they exciting. run. They run deep, right? I I, um, I have the benefit of both being a first generation and a sixth generation Michigander. Right, both, which very few people can claim. Um, so I want to fast forward a little bit because then uh, you you mentioned this uh, stress on education, the importance on education your parents put on paper. You are like every mother-in-law's dream. You went. You're a product of Michigan public schools. I was. Um, you were a Rhodes Scholar, which is incredible. You went to Oxford. You got a PhD from there as well. You went to uh, medical school at Columbia just because you needed another degree, I guess. What What was the plan? Did you always <clears> want to <throat> be a doctor? I, um, from, from, from an early age, uh, knew I loved science. I just, yeah. I was the weird kid who liked to go to the dentist uh, because <laughs> I, I loved to see the x-ray of my teeth. And, um, <laughs> Uh, and usually I think when you're a kid and you're a healthy kid, which I was really privileged to be, uh, you don't really see the inner workings of what a doctor does. They just sort of check you up and then walk away. But at the dentist, you could actually see your teeth, which was cool. Um, and so science was just really important to be both my parents are engineers. And so science was just a language we spoke in our house. Um, and, uh, I also, you know, had the privilege of traveling, uh, to Egypt most summers where I'd hang out with my grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins uh, in Alexandria in that same one-bedroom apartment where my dad built my future. Oh, wow. That was um, most summers you'd go live there? Many summers, yeah, yeah. growing up. And so uh, I'd spend half my summer in Alexandria and mm-hmm. then half my summer uh, on a lake called Crystal um, in the middle of Michigan in a county called Montcalm County. And uh, that, What was that like, that kind of exactly. split life? So, you know... It, the, the interesting thing about being a third culture kid yeah. uh, is that you are always referred to as the other thing that right. you are, right? So uh, in Alexandria, I was the American kid. Mm-hmm. And in uh, in the U.S., um, where I'm really from, um, I was the Egyptian kid. Right. And uh, there is a sense, though, of being able to appreciate the least common denominator of humanity um, mm-hmm. when you talk to so many different kinds of people, right? I mean... What do you uh, mean by that? You always had to find the thing you had in common with other people? Yeah, so think about, yeah. think about the way that your grandma loves you. Yeah. I mean, it's the same if your grandma is uh, illiterate and uh, grew up and born and raised in a market in Alexandria, or your grandma is a nurse who was raised in Flint, Michigan. Right. They love you the same way. And the way that they communicate that love and what that love means to you is the same. And so it allows you to sort of 
a appreciate the deep diversity of people Mm -hmm. and then also appreciate the things that make us commonly human and i'm really privileged to have had so many experiences with so many different kinds of people and for me uh what i came to appreciate most about myself was that i've just always loved people i've always loved hearing their stories understanding where they come from uh appreciating that common thread of humanity that you get in everybody's stories Mm -hmm. and um, appreciating what it means for the things that matter in people's lives. And, uh, and so for me, I thought I wanted to be a doctor because I loved science. I love people. I could use science to help people. It, it seemed like an obvious, um, yeah. But then you turned. You took a little bit of a turn there. After you finished all these degrees, you decided not to continue with your residency, right? Yeah. And at 30, you went back to Detroit. You, yeah. you petitioned to get the job yeah. as the health director for the city of Detroit. Why? Why'd you want to do that? Yeah. So, I grew up in, in Bloomfield Hills, uh, which is a nice suburb of Detroit. Mm-hmm. To get to Detroit from my house, uh, you'd drive about 20 minutes south. And in that 20 minutes, you would also drive about 10 years difference in life expectancy. And in medicine, we spend a lot of time focused on the biology of things, mm-hmm. right? What it is that cells do that dictate health and disease and, and different pathologies. At the end of the day, if you want to understand what dictates that 10-year difference in life expectancy between Bloomfield Hills and Detroit, it usually has a lot more to do with differences in access to a very basic set of goods. Mm -hmm. Uh, A good job that pays a living wage, that puts a good roof over somebody's head, that puts uh, good food on their table, clean air in their lungs, clean water in their cups, um, allows them to live in a a peaceful community where they're not subject to violence from either uh, a neighbor or the state itself. Mm And so for me, as I started to learn about these things, I did my PhD in epidemiology, uh, which is the study of the distribution and determinants of disease. Uh, And I came to appreciate that those social things were the things that mattered more in terms of dictating health, right? I think the biology is really important and fascinating and fun and interesting and something I really enjoyed learning about. But if I wanted to make a mark on that 10-year life expectancy gap, I was going to have to focus a lot more on the politics of health. And I got that opportunity uh, pretty early when I was named health commissioner in Detroit. Yeah. I was um, at that time a professor at Columbia uh, studying health, health uh, disparities, specifically looking at racial and, and socioeconomic health disparities, mm-hmm. um, and realized I just was really frustrated writing the next paper. Um, I really wanted to be a part of, of fixing the problem. You didn't feel like it was having immediate impact, right. you could see. I, I think the, the work is really important and the research matters. It just, I didn't feel like it mattered to solve the problems that I wanted to solve right now. Can I ask you, why is that important to you at all? Because it still, it contributes, obviously, in some <clears> way, <throat> when you're writing these kinds of papers that are contributing to the overall discussion and the conversation. You're advancing ideas yeah. in some way that can go on to help people. Why do you think it was so important to you to have an immediate impact that you could see and feel? I think it was the, I didn't feel a sense of urgency in the room. And, um, you know, I think a lot of folks in the academy do great work and Mm -hmm. it matters. Uh, But they're so far removed from the people who suffer the disparities that they study. And I think when you take the time to expose yourself to that, Mm -hmm. the sense of urgency comes back. And I felt so far removed from those problems because... You know, I got to, I, got, I was working at Columbia University, right? Really rich institution. And uh, although the, the, uh, my office was in Washington Heights, I was in a little bubble. And, you know, I was going between conferences where people will appraise your work based on how rigorous it is and then, you know, slap you on the back. And it felt like um, a lot of smart people just celebrating being smart. And I did not want to be a part of that. And I wanted instead um, to, to be able to solve the problems that I was seeing 
Um, and that to me meant being able to do the institutional work. And the other thing was, you know, I, I looked at, uh, I looked around me and saw that, um, I was a pretty good academic, yeah. uh, but the people around me loved it way more than I did. Yeah. And for me, the question was always, why does this move policy? How does this change an institution? And I couldn't answer that question, obviously. Um, and, 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 and my, my colleagues could. And so, and you know, the, the thing that I also realized is that I was always a lot more interested in how the institution worked and how we could move the institution to better focus on the issues that mattered. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was pretty clearly not a match match made in, um, in, in heaven for me. So, so the department was in pretty bad shape though, it when was. you took it over, right? Yeah. It had been privatized right. years earlier. People had fled. It was down to what, like a handful of employees and it was up to you to basically build it from scratch, yeah. right? So we, what did you do? We walked in, so I walked into a department um, that had just been uh, republicized, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had five city employees and 85 contractors. In fact, we were in the, we were in the back wow. of the building where people pay parking tickets uh, in Detroit. And uh, I, was, I was joke, my first day walking in, you know, I look a little bit young. And so uh, I was 30 when you take this I job, I was 30 when right? I took the job. And, um, and so you know, I put on my best suit and my big boy tie and I'm, I'm getting the mindset Literally, first day of work, this guy uh, walks up to me from, from the right, and he looks at me. He's like, hey, you work here? And I looked at him for a minute. I was like, yes. Yes, I do work here. <laughs> he's like, great. Can you take my parking ticket in for me? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm, I'm the health director. And he's like, why are you walking into the parking building? And I looked at him for a minute. I was like, you know what? I'm asking myself the same question. Like, I have these same questions right now in my exactly. head. Exactly. Um, so that's a huge, huge undertaking, though. Yeah. What do you do? What's the priority? To be quite honest, first first three weeks of my time on the job, I uh, I was completely lost. I mean, I was I was learning a lot of new things. Right, we had budgets due a week into my time there mm-hmm. that I had to sit down and make sure we got right. Uh, noticed a bunch of budgeting errors. Had you ever built right. a budget like that before? No. I done so. You're just learning on. I mean, the job. I, I I called uh, my my stepbrother who's an accountant. Yeah, and I was like, I need you to teach me everything I need to know about accounting, and went to the library and actually checked out a book about accounting, which I read in did you uh, really? in a night. Um, and then wow. the next day went and sat down with our budgets and figured out what we needed to do. And then I remember uh, negotiating my first contract. Um, called a friend of mine who is a lawyer. I said, mm-hmm. What do I need to know about contracts? He's like, Look, man indemnity clause. <laughs> I was like, all right, beyond that. Okay. Um, so, you know, I sat down with a, uh, a sort of a, a, an idiot's guide to contracts and, um, and sat down and then hammered out my first contract. Right? Did it was- you ever at any point, though, because you're literally learning on the job while you're talking about a lot of people's lives in yeah. your hands as, as the director of this health, it's an incredibly important department there. Yeah. Did you ever feel, I'm in over my head, I should not be doing this? Mm, every day. Um, but I also knew why I was doing it, that I cared to do it, and that I've always uh, been lucky to be able to learn fast. And, um, and I knew that I would bring a level of intensity and focus to the work mm-hmm. um, that, that it's uncommon uh, in, in a lot of folks in jobs like that. And so uh, we built fast. Um, in a year and a half, uh, we doubled the size of the department. We multiplied city funding for public health 10 times, and we kicked off marquee programs uh, to do things like deliver uh, glasses to every child in the city who needed a pair for mm-hmm. free at school. 
uh, to stand up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in the state, um, to have every single school, daycare, and Head Start tested for lead in the water after Flint, uh, to make sure that we were organizing the services that we provide for children after they were lead poisoned by bringing in every single department and uh, nonprofit in the city uh, to have a case conference every month to make sure that every kid gets everything that they need Mm -hmm. uh, to be healthy and whole in the future. We were able to uh, build a program called Sister Friends where uh, we provide peer mentorship for mothers who are newly pregnant uh, in a city with a higher infant mortality rate than my father's native Egypt. Uh, We were building to provide access to preconception family planning for uh, for, um, uh, young women uh, in places that were more discreet. We only had one Planned Parenthood clinic in the entire city of Detroit, and that was downtown uh, which is really hard to get to for most folks. And so uh, we were working to, to put um, access to, to preconception family planning uh, in places like rec centers uh, where they could be far more easily accessible. Um, we worked, I completely rebuilt uh, an animal control facility um, uh, because that was a part of my job. And when I walked in, we were, as a city, uh, killing 86% of the dogs who came into our facility. By the time we left, wow. um, we, were, we were saving 71% of them and we reduced dog bites in Detroit uh, by 30%. And we did that in a year and a half. Um, so you were there, you took this job in 2015, and then it was in February of this year that you declared your candidacy for governor. Yeah. So you were there two years. Yeah. Do you feel like you fixed it? Oh, I mean, there's there's a lot more that the institution will need to grow. But I'll tell you what, um, I think we gave it a really great base and we built a team of people who will continue to guide it in the future. And, you know, I, I, I talk about these things like I did them myself. That's not even close uh, to true. What we did was uh, we were able to build a great team of people who believed in the work. Um, we were able to inspire the people who were already there. And uh, we were able to deliver a set of goods and services to people in the city that hadn't been delivered for a very long time uh, before I started. So I'm proud of the work that we did together. But, but let I, me ask you this. You were there two years. You've obviously accomplished a lot. You got a lot of things underway that hadn't been started before there's clearly still more work to be done why not stay you've never held any other elected position right no town council no board of education no nothing why run for governor now why not stay there and see through that job first yeah let me put you in my shoes for a minute right i was rebuilding an agency that had been shut down when our state took over detroit's finances and then i watched as the same state government that shut down the health department was now poisoning 9,000 kids through the exact same mechanism of state takeover. And I was also watching as an individual uh, rose to prominence and rose to the highest office in our country, uh, decrying all of, I think, our country's highest held ideals. Um, And talking about how he was going to strip funding for a lot of the things that we were doing at the health department. And I realized that to continue forward the work that I have always been committed to, which is uh, building the, the kinds of institutions that empower people to have their best, most dignified lives, that I was not actually going to continue to be able to do that um, as, as health director, given what uh, the current president's uh, aims were. And also also realized that so much of the work that we needed to do in places like Detroit uh, and in places like Flint and in places like Kalkaska, uh, whether they be rural or urban context, they require an agenda that puts people's well-being first. And mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing that either at the city level or at the at the state level, to be frank. And so because of this momentum you have, because of your, your pedigree, your resume, your, your young, you're 33 right now, um, you're highly educated, you are, I'll say it, you're charismatic, you know, you've, you've got a, a young, energetic following. <clears throat> There's the obvious comparison. A lot of people say, this guy's the new Obama, right? 
What do you make of that? Look, I um, I am so privileged to have been a young brown man with a funny name in my 20s, watching as President Obama was both being elected and leading our country. I will, I will never be able to thank him enough for uh, what he was able to help me see in myself. Um, you know, the funny thing is, uh, the first time I was ever told I should run for office was, was actually by President Clinton. Um, and I was the valedictorian of my class at Michigan. I got to give the commencement speech. And uh, I gave my speech, and President Clinton gave his speech, and he mentioned me in, in his speech. And, you know, it was the first time my dad was ever like, I'm actually kind of proud of you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, he came up to me afterwards, and he just looks at me. He's like, hey, why are you going to medical school? And I looked at him for a minute. I was like, well, I'm brown. Um, uh, <laughs> kind of comes with the territory. Comes with the territory. <laughs> Second thing is like, nobody ever asks you that in an accusatory way when, right. when you're a young like person you're graduating college. Yeah. And I, I looked at him and, 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 and he was like, look, you, you really should consider running for office someday. And I looked at him for a minute and I was like, look, I don't know if you saw my name, but it's 11 letters long and that's just the first name. And this was six years after 9-11, right? I just thought that this was completely... Completely impossible never for somebody like mind. me. Yeah, um, I was like, "This just not, it's not going to be possible in in today's day and age." Mm. Um, and President Obama, in his election, I remember I was washing dishes when I saw him speak at the DNC in 2004. Yeah. I just put the dishes down and just sat on the couch. I remember my entire family was like, "I did not know politics could look like this." Um, so I'm really, really thankful for what he was able to help me see in myself. And I know that there are a lot of people uh, who have that same kind of inspiration uh, mm-hmm. about him. That being said, um, from, a, from a political perspective, there are a lot of things I disagree with what he did. Um, you know, he, he deported more people in his presidency than uh, a number of presidents before him combined. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the ways in which he expanded drone warfare, I think, are really broken. I think the ways that uh, he was willing to, um, to compromise uh, on, on health reform in ways that um, have ultimately put us in the position that we're in right now, where the current president is dismantling uh, the, 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 um, the ACA as to the degree that he can. What um, do you mean by that? Because obviously that's one of the accomplishments from President Obama's administration. People yeah. hold up as a highlight, right? That he was able to get this incredible sweeping reform through in some way. What, do you, what else would you have wanted him to do? Well, look, he had, he had majorities in both houses of Congress, and he was a Democratic president. And uh, he settled to try and build bipartisan momentum on issues that are at core really, really critical to being able to provide sustainable, uh, affordable health care for a lot of people. And, um, you know, what the ACA did, it, it, I mean, it, it, it has reduced the number of uh, uninsured people in America tremendously, and that's right. fantastic. Um, but at the same time, there are still uninsured people in America. Mm-hmm. And um, it has cemented in place a system of insurance uh, where we rely on a for-profit uh, market system of insurance that doesn't always allocate uh, access to health care equitably or affordably for a lot of people. Um, and it has left us in a position now where uh, you have an administration that uh, can do things internally to itself uh, that can make, unfortunately, health insurance um, unaffordable for a lot of people. So I think- let's talk about what you want to do, though, because among your issues, as you've laid them out on your website and other interviews, You've talked about healthcare. You've talked about wanting to see a single payer system to some degree. How how would that work yeah. in Michigan, <clears throat> and why do you think you'd be able to do it? Why in Michigan of all places? Yeah. So on my way to work every day, uh, I get to uh, see Canada from 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 my my um, my drive, mm-hmm. and 
I just want to make the comparison there. Canada has what is called a single-payer health system, mm-hmm. right? And what single-payer means is that you basically have one insurer who usually is the government, um, and that insurer dictates the prices of uh, certain goods and services. Right. And because it has an incentive to save money, will also invest in things like preventive care. So in Canada, they spend 60, 60% as much on health as healthcare as we do. Mm-hmm. Everybody in their society has access to the healthcare that they need, uh, when they need it, and um, their life expectancy is about a year and a half longer than ours. So by any metric, their health system is outperforming ours. The big difference between ours and theirs is that there is both a profit motive on the insurance side and a profit motive on the provider side mm-hmm. in our healthcare system. That profit motive drives a certain increase in the amount of actual healthcare given uh, than the health provided, right? But so, have you seen support for single payer in Michigan? I mean, look, deeply blue states, right? Like Vermont, yeah. California, they've tried this. They weren't able to get it done there. Why do you think it would work in Michigan? Yeah. So remember, Michigan, before it went for Donald Trump, went for Bernie Sanders, right? The independents um, and the Democrats in our, in our state are really progressive. Mm-hmm. The other issue is that so many people in our state are beholden to an economy that has tended to freeze them out. And so when you talk to them about what they need in their lives to be secure, it's pretty clear that access to high-quality health care is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And people are watching as the current system and the system before them has failed, had failed them, right? This is the home to GM. And uh, if you remember back in 2008, when GM was facing, was facing uh, bankruptcy mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and took a, a federal bailout, uh, they were paying 15 cents on the dollar, not just for health care for their employees. They were paying 15 cents on the dollar for health care for retirees, right? And a lot of those jobs, you know where they went? To Canada. And so this, to me, uh, is an obvious opportunity for us to have a real conversation at the state level. Here's the other part of it. One of the big problems that we have with health, po- health policy that hits people's pocketbooks uh, in the United States, right? The thing about insurance is you pay insurance every, uh, every month, mm-hmm. and then you only really pay for health care above and beyond that if you're insured when you get sick. Mm-hmm. So most people don't actually feel the price tag of, of, uh, of health care. What they do often feel, though, especially if they're over the age of 50, what they feel is the price tag for prescription drugs. And unfortunately, because of the pharmaceutical lobby in our country, uh, Medicare, which is one of the single, the world's biggest buyers of, of, of healthcare, can't actually negotiate the price of prescription drugs. One of the things we could do in Michigan, if we were to pass a single payer system, would be to be able to negotiate on behalf of the 10 million people in the state, the cost of prescription drugs in the state. That delivers a real value to people. And then the other side of that is the business argument. If you talk to any small business owner in the state of Michigan and you ask them, what is the single biggest part, biggest challenge of doing business in the state? If they're bigger than 50 employees, they'll almost always tell you it's that it's providing health care. I'm just thinking of the irony of Michigan being uh, the state to pass single-payer health care as the same state that basically helped Donald Trump win the presidency and how that would go over. Yeah, well, look, here's, here's, here's the thing, right? All of this uh, implies my winning the governorship. There is and, that. Uh, and I want you to think about what it would mean for our country that if one of the states that helped push Donald Trump over the edge turned around and, uh, and elected a 33-year-old... Uh, Muslim doctor as governor, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I think I think there's there's a much more complex story to be told. I think people have seen um, the, the 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 current administration and this current president for what he is and what they are, um, which is 
you know, a, a shell for the same kind of corporate cronyism uh, that has dominated our politics for a really long time. And people want real public servants who care about real issues. And well, I let me, hope uh, let me ask about that. some of those issues, though, because these are other things you've been talking about is important to you. You want to obviously invest in, uh, you want to change the healthcare system to the degree you can. You want to invest in universal pre-K, yep. uh, which would be huge. Um, you want to make more investments in public education as well. All, a lot of the things you've been talking about obviously cost money. Mm-hmm. How you run one budget in your career, how would you make this work? What do yeah. you do? Are you raising taxes? So I think right now we're between a vision of two, two visions of Michigan, right? There's the old vision that says that the best way to create jobs is to make sure that a corporation that wants to build a factory chooses Michigan instead of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And to, make them, to get them to do that, you cut corporate taxes so low right, that you actually can't afford the things that taxes are intended to buy. Mm-hmm. And so you've cut taxes and then that corporation will come, they'll build their factory in Michigan. And of course, the thing that they want to do immediately after building their factory, having promised you 500 jobs, is to clip their their, their labor costs, which means cutting jobs mm-hmm. because they can automate them out. 87% of the jobs that our economy in Michigan has lost has been lost to automation. And so then you're back to square one, you got to go back to the well, right? Because you need more jobs. Mm-hmm. And so you do it again and again and again. And over time, you no longer have any more revenue to cut. And that's what leaves you where we are in Michigan right now. Sure. People point to unemployment. They say it's 3.8%. That's mm-hmm. an all time low. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include the 10% of Michiganders who were frozen out of the economy in 2007, first of all. Second of all, to get that, we've sold our soul. We no longer have money to be able to invest in an education system that is meaningful. We spend less per pupil per year on education in Michigan than, than any other state in the Midwest. And our infrastructure is broken. 29% of our roads, 37% of our bridges don't meet basic competency criteria. And beyond that, uh, being able to provide things like broadband and cellular service in places like the UP, uh, we fail miserably That's at the doing upper that. Peninsula the upper peninsula for all the non-Michiganders out there. Thank you. So how do you fix it? Right. Where does the revenue come from? The other vision of Michigan mm-hmm. is is the one that says that the only thing that has ever actually created a job is a person with a great idea and the ability to invest in that idea and build themselves a business. Small businesses. Small businesses. businesses. So to me, we stop cutting corporate taxes, right? Mm -hmm. We start investing in small and mid-sized businesses and we invest in education again because if we want to have homegrown small businesses, we're going to have to make sure our kids are empowered to compete. So that is number one. I can't personally as a governor or even the legislature pass in past taxes in Michigan because uh, that's required uh, to go through a vote of the people. Right. Um, but I do think we need to think uh, about alternative sources of revenue. Um, one example of that, right? We know that the, the burden of, uh, of, of, of the illegality of marijuana falls disproportionately on uh, low-income people of color, mm-hmm. right? I think we, we legalize marijuana and then we tax and regulate, and that could provide the state uh, upwards of $125 million a year. Is that part of your official platform to Absolutely. legalize pot? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this is as somebody who's, who's never smoked it. Um, so I just think it's smart policy. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, other, other substances that are legal, like alcohol, mm-hmm. um, marijuana does not seem to be any more dangerous overall uh, than alcohol is. And so we've got a double standard right now. You know what strikes me as you're talking about some of your economic approaches, though, is that for all the comparisons to President Obama, and, uh, and even to Senator Sanders to some degree, right? Some of your inspiration has come from there. I know you have a lot of staffers who were also behind mm-hmm. Senator Sanders' campaign. Uh, you have a lot of overlap with Donald Trump, too. I mean, these talking points about wanting to keep multinationals from leaving, about protecting American workers, um, about making sure that automation doesn't, you know, 
force all of them out of jobs. Those are all, you've talked about wanting to renegotiate trade agreements, too, that you find harmful to Michigan workers. Those are all Trump talking points, too. Well, um, I don't tweet them. Uh, and um, there's, there's a difference between a talking point and a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talk about issues, and then we create plans, and then we execute on them. Um, there's but there also, is some overlap there. I you think, can see that, I think an approach it, at least. If it means being able to provide great jobs for uh, uh, middle-income and, and, and working Michiganders, yeah. and that's his goal, it's also my goal. I think the way we go about doing that is fundamentally different. And my hope is that we can recognize that uh, the ability to do that will mean reaching across divides rather than erecting them, being able to recognize that whether you're talking to poor or working or retired people in places like Detroit uh, who are disproportionately black or poor or working or retired people in places like Kalkaska who are almost all white, um, the challenges that they face are in fact the same challenges. And most of those challenges come at uh, because of the corporate... Uh, capture of our politics in a moment. And so, you know, for, for I think where we differ tremendously, um, he and I, uh, aside from my not being a white supremacist, is that, um, uh, is that for him, he sees that corporations are going to be the answer. To me, they're not. Um, I think corporations in a lot of ways uh, have uh, eaten our politics because of their capacity to buy politicians and then dictate policy to either side of the political conversation. To me, I think it's about empowering small businesses uh, to be able to compete and to grow in Michigan. And um, I think that's probably where he and I differ tremendously. Um, I should ask you, though, because all of this, as you mentioned, doesn't matter unless you win. You've got a right. Democratic primary ahead of you right. in August of next year. And and you're not even the front runner right now, right, in, in the current polling. For all the momentum you say you have, that's not what the numbers show so far. The current front runner is Gretchen Whitmer, mm-hmm. is that right? A former state senator right. with years of experience in elected office under her belt. You guys have a lot of overlap in terms of your approach, your policy. No, you're squinting your eyes. Is that wrong? Where do you differ? What's the difference between you and the current yeah. front runner? So I'll say experience, form, and function. Um, in experience, she's been at this a long time, mm-hmm. uh, but I think there's two ways of thinking about experience. There's what you've actually delivered and how much time it's taken you to deliver what you've delivered. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has 14 years in the legislature, and you know I have nothing against her. I think she's a good person. Um, but in her time in the legislature, she's passed zero bills. Uh, she's missed 1,051 votes. Um, I don't see that as a record of service that, that I would brag about. Um, I know we talked a lot about what I was able to accomplish uh, at the health department in the short time that I was there. The other point is I have executive leadership experience, uh, which is a very different thing than legislative leadership experience. And uh, the experience of having to deliver a set of goods and services in real time to people who need it is something that is unique. It's very different than what a legislator does, uh, as much as I respect what, legislature, le- what the legislature does. Mm-hmm. I'll also say that the question of a front-runner this early on seems sure, to me there's a, be a, a lot bit of time. Of a, Things a could point. change. Yeah. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders won his uh, primary in Michigan uh, pretty handily. Yeah. And seven months before the <clears throat> primary, he was down in the polls by 40 points. Uh, and so there's a lot of time to make up. And if you look at the, the, the metrics that matter in a race like this, uh, whether that is um, 
the capacity of our ground game, the fact that we have 300 interns, 2,500 active volunteers. We're signing up 50% of anybody who's heard me speak to volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've knocked on 80,000 doors. Uh, I think that speaks loudly. That's, that's not, my, my opponent hasn't, hasn't even touched those numbers. But if you look you at think, fundraising. Let um, me ask you this. When you took over the health department, you learned on the job. You right. called people who knew what they were doing. You learned as quickly as you could. There's a lot more at stake when you're governor. Can you afford to do the same thing? Isn't that the kind of role where experience working in that kind of office and working in that kind of function, where that matters, where you can hit the ground running? Well, experience always matters, but unless you've ever been the governor of Michigan, you don't know how to be the governor of Michigan. So, uh, But you've never even served an elected office, not I think, once. I think the question about election and the question about service are two different things. I've never been elected, but we're doing everything it takes uh, to demonstrate that, um, that I think we've got an inside track to having that done. And then there's the, the other side of it is executive leadership experience mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, the person with whom the buck stops. Um, and I have that experience, and you know, other from the people in the department. rest from the health department, other people don't. And let me let me tell you but why I just it matters. Be clear now. You're running on two years of experience right. at the health department, where you, admittedly you got a lot done that needed to be done. There's still a lot more work to be done, but you're really running on two years of leadership experience there, and asking people to put their faith and trust in you. Yeah, isn't that asking a lot? I think it's asking people to put their faith and trust in two years of pretty outstanding experience. Um, and their faith and trust in the capacity uh, to solve problems and to work together to engage. Um, I think, look, if, if you're talking about, you know, obviously uh, what we would all want is somebody who, is, uh, who has served uh, as, as governor of the state for uh, infinite numbers of years and um, will then continue to serve the state admirably. We don't have that. Um, and if you're choosing between somebody who knows the experience of having to answer uh, to people and having to deliver for people in real time versus the experience of somebody who gets to vote on some things mm-hmm. and thinks about them in abstract um, and uh, has demonstrated the ability to build something out of nothing uh, versus you know taking a role that is tried and true in an office that is already built out for you, um, I think the I think it's pretty clear now. Uh, will I be a better governor in year two than I was in year one? I hope so. And in year three than I was in year two? Absolutely. Experience makes you better. Uh, but you also have to think about where we start from. And um, I think I've made a pretty good case uh, for why uh, my experiences rebuilding an agency that was broken down by the state, uh, my experiences having to uh, deliver goods and services that did not exist in the past or mm-hmm. to be accountable when things went wrong, um, I think I make a pretty good case. And I also think I make a pretty good case, case Uh, for being able to take on big tasks uh, and more than deliver. Um, I think my opponent hasn't made that case. Um, And, you know, if we're talking about uh, the ability to perform in a, in a space where one is already working, I would say that a, um, a, a legislator who served 14 years and passed zero bills um, is probably not going to be the person who you want moving forward, leading your state to deliver more than what is absolutely uh, in place right now. So Let's talk a little bit about your state now, because it extends obviously well beyond the areas in which you grew up and in which the areas you have a lot of the support right now. Because um, Michigan's kind of interesting, right? Like there's a big divide between the urban community and the rural communities. You mentioned Kalkaska earlier, which may be a new word for a lot of people out there. So tell me about Kalkaska. Where is it? Describe that area for me. Yeah, so if you imagine uh, Michigan as a mitten, mm-hmm. um, uh, Kalkaska is uh, in the middle knuckle of the pinky. Okay, <laughs> very specific. 
Uh, and, well, um, I should mention Kalkaska was in the headlines. It was. Because of some terrible uh, a Facebook post, right, by one of the elected officials there, the village president, yeah. who uh, shared on Facebook. It was a post referencing the need to, like, kill each and every Muslim. And um, I followed it a little bit only because it was so egregious. And I realized the headlines afterwards weren't, like, townspeople in uproar over comments. It was, like, town divided. Because there were people there who actually supported that idea that every single Muslim should be killed. You've gone to Kalkaska. Mm-hmm. What a was lovely like? town hall. Um, and uh, had conversations about the same things we have conversations with, uh, about with people in places like Detroit. I mean... Did this come up? It did. And look, I, I, I want us to step back for a minute. Um, we are in really polarized times. And in really polarized times, one of the most revolutionary acts that we can... Uh, I think follow through on is the willingness to communicate and to engage one another on our mutual humanity. And um, we've been traveling all over the state now. I've been to 90 cities in 45 counties, mm-hmm. right? In, in a lot of places that uh, people would call Trump country, although I reject that out of hand. Um, and why we're do you having, reject that though? If they overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump, why is it not fair to call it Trump country? This country is built on a constitution and that man seems uh, to run roughshod over that constitution m- week in and week out. And, and yet so, majorities in those counties voted for him. That's right. Um, and I think that's in part because we are so polarized right now. Look, I've got, a, I've got family who voted for Donald Trump, right? I, I told you about my, my uh, mixed ethnic family. And one of my favorite uncles, I mean, this was the guy who took us snowmobiling in the winter. He would uh, take us water skiing in the summer. Yeah. Uh, he voted for Donald Trump, but he, he was a truck driver. And he built himself a nice little trucking business that in 2008 um, went south. And he was in a position where he had to lay off people whose kids relied on the job that they that he was providing their parents to get their next meal mm-hmm. um, that affects you and uh, what my uncle was between was a choice between a guy who um, seemed relatively unhinged but seems to be speaking to him and uh, an establishment on either side Republican or Democrat that was telling him that uh, well you know if you just let us let us fix it we'll We'll get there. And so on the it's Democratic like a rejection side, of the status quo, you're saying, for exactly, a lot of these folks. Exactly. And so I think it's way too easy for us to boil uh, the support for Donald Trump down to something that is the most egregious thing that he said, right? Isn't this kind of what you're running on to, though, a rejection of the status quo? It is a rejection of a failure to solve problems, which is a very different is thing different? than a rejection of... Uh, a truth, a rejection of a certain group of people that live outside of the places that you live, um, and uh, and a willingness to come together to solve problems rather than to divide one another and see if we can't uh, get one group to beat up the other. So it's almost like the premise you're saying is valid. It's the same. You can acknowledge that, but the oh, approach no to fixing the problem is very, very different. Donald Trump's diagnosis of the frustration of real people in places like Michigan is spot on. That That frustration is absolutely real. And there's two ways to deal with it. You can either go to frustrated people and be like, yeah, you should be pissed off. And wouldn't it be better if you should tell these other people who are causing your problem why you're pissed off and you should get back at them, right? That is, that is, the, that is the Trump response. That is Trump's playbook. So how do you fix that? When you go to places like Kalkaska, you face people who have these fears, who have these yeah. issues. What do you say to them? So the only thing that I have ever known uh, that works in the face of frustration and anger is information and empathy and uh, a willingness to listen and to move forward. 
And that is what we bring everywhere we go. But when you show up as the, uh, the first Muslim candidate for governor there in a place where half the town said every Muslim should be killed, what do you say to them? It has Hi. to come up. My name's Abdul. Really nice to meet you. I'd love to understand what's going on. Tell me about your life. I want to understand what's, what's keeping you up at night. I want to understand what you talk about with your spouse that you don't want your kids to hear. I want to know um, what has caused you pain and frustration in your life last week. I want to know what happened a month ago. I want to know what happened a year ago. Um, and I want to know what you hope that we can do about it. And I want to know uh, what you fear and I want to know what you hope for. Um, and I want to know about your kids and I want to know their names. I want to know what they care about. I want to know what they want to be when they grow up. Um, and then I want to tell you about myself. And I want you to understand that the things that you care about are the things that I care about too. Um, I've got a daughter on her way and, uh, Sarah, my wife, um, is, uh, is pregnant with her first and, you know, she's, she's due any day now. And I think about the world that I want to raise that little girl in. And I think, you know, nobody who, with whom I've spoken to in 90 cities and 45 counties, thousands of people, uh, wants any different for their kid than I want for mine. And if we are able to connect around that and then ask ourselves what it is that we need in our state to be able to solve forward so that we are proud of what we're handing off to our kids, I think we get there. And, um, you know, so people are frustrated and I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge them frustration. It has been a hard 10 years in Michigan, but I hope that we can think about what we want to build together, that we are willing to dignify all of us as uh, equal under the eyes of the law and equal under our, 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 our state's uh, goals and aspirations and then build that way. Um, because the reality of it is, is that uh, that frustration, you know, when, when you, when you, uh, you want to talk about how we fix, it's either that you pit people against each other and then ask them to fight for scraps while Donald Trump and, and his cronies are uh, continuing to enrich the richest of us uh, and watching and laughing as this is happening or we are willing to work together and say, you know, the only way that we're going to build forward so that each of our kids, whether it's a boy that I got to take care of in the, in the city of Detroit, uh, three-year-old boy, fourth child of a 21-year-old mom, father's in jail, uh, or my daughter or uh, uh, the child of somebody in Kalkaska, the only way forward for us is that we dignify and recognize that we all want the same things for our kids, that right now the way we get there is, is a willingness to break our uh, economics and our politics out of the stranglehold of people um, who have told us that, uh, that they know what's best for us for a really long time, um, and we're willing to think critically about solutions to the problems that we face. We unlock our economy, we rebuild our schools, uh, we build an infrastructure that we can be proud of, we make sure that people don't have to make an evil decision between getting the care they need when they get sick or uh, putting their family in bankruptcy, um, being able to dignify that all of us should have the same rights under the law, regardless of how we pray, who we love, what color our skin is. Um, these are things I think uh, the vast majority of Michiganders can come together around. And, um, and I think I know this because you know, I've had a unique opportunity to get to know uh, a lot of different kinds of Michiganders in my own family. Um, well, let me ask you about this because you obviously you talked about the multi-faith uh, family you grew up in, multi-ethnic, multi-racial. There was a lot of sort of love and support growing up around that. But I think every minority in America has some kind of story to tell about the time when they felt they were otherized in mm -hmm. some way. You've talked about it as an Egyptian-American, as a Muslim-American. You have faced discrimination before. Tell me about some of that. When has that happened for you? Where have you seen that? Yeah, look, I, um, uh, I, have, I have worked really hard um, 
to to be American and um, and to prove my Americanness not just to others to myself. What do you because mean? Because when that? you grow up um, as a you know brown skinned Muslim uh, American, uh, there's a whole lot of questions about who you really are um, that you have to ask yourself because everybody assumes you to be another, right? And so uh, you plumb the depths of your own identity and the things that I've always known is that. You know, I'm really blessed um, to have had the privileges that I have uh, because I grew up in America. I mean, look, I, I uh, grew up hanging out with my cousins in Egypt who never had the opportunities that I have, uh, though they are just as smart and just as charismatic and, you know, just as whatever it is that I am. Um, I had the opportunities that I had because my father uh, worked really hard, but because my father came here. And um, you know, a, a countless number of investments that my state and my country have made in me, some that I see and some that I don't. The fact that I had a subsidized, pr- completely for free public education mm-hmm. and um, uh, subsidized college education. I got to go to grad school twice for free. Um, were you ever picked on as a child? Yeah, absolutely. Were you teased right. because absolutely. of your identity? Um, were you ever discriminated against on the basis of your identity? No doubt. Every, everybody who is brown or black skinned in this country has an experience of that. Um, but that is to say that, you know, I recognize that in, in, in the sum total of things, there's a lot to be defended. That being said, right, I remember um, post 9-11, it was the week after I was a junior in high school, I was um, a pretty good football player. And uh, we didn't play the week of 9-11, but the week after we did. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I was pretty good, so I, I usually got double teamed off play. But this game, uh, I was hearing insults and getting picked on in ways that I'd never in the past. Like um, what? What were you hearing? You know, go back to your country, Osama. And I was like, well, Osama's my brother. Um, <laughs> Wrong guy. It's the one over there. Um, but, uh, but, but those are things that I, you know, that... that that the, the, the usual teasing um, for being other took a very particular uh, and very vile um, kind of image. That being said, uh, I remember, I, so uh, off play, one play, I, um, I was, I was, it was the third quarter and I was getting picked on the entire game. Uh, and so I lost my, I lost my cool and, um, uh, and I slugged one of the players. And of course, that's when the ref turns around, sees it. Uh, I get a 15 yard penalty and get pulled out of the game. And my coach, he's like, what? what the hell are you doing, Abdul? Uh, and I looked at him, I said, well, you know, they were being racist to me. And he said the most honest thing that I think anybody could have told me at that point. He said, listen, you are going to be Abdul al Sayed for the rest of your life. And you're either going to use that as an excuse or you're going to use it as motivation. Um, you know, and I think, obviously, it was a very unfair thing to say, right? Because I would have wanted him to be like, well, we should tell the refs, et cetera, et cetera. But it was very true. And, um, and I have... Uh, always believed in the privilege that I have in this country despite that. And the beautiful thing about our country, right, if you just look at the preamble to our constitution, we the people in order to form a more perfect union, Mm -hmm. um, I want to look at that word, the use of the word perfect in that sentence. It's that we are not perfect because the implication is if you're trying to become more perfect, you are not actually perfect in your current state. Um, But that we correct. And the thing about this country is that... uh, you know, it has a number of original sins, whether it's, you know, being founded in the first place uh, of the subjugation of one group of dark skinned people by a group of other people from a completely other continent. Right. Or uh, the systematic uh, trucking in of um, of African peoples to serve as slaves in this country. Those are original sins um, that I think we're even still even beginning to reckon with. Mm-hmm. That being said we have made strides and we will continue to make strides. And the responsibility is to push forward always for those strides. And so, you know, whether or not I am loved or hated because of my faith, 
that to me is actually immaterial. The question is, how do I leverage where I am to continue to push forward uh, on a greater, broader arc of that work of perfecting? And if I get to play a role at all in helping our country forward in doing that, well, then I'm inheriting from uh, a long line of people who have done justice by themselves, by the people in their country, by their neighbors, and by the country itself. Um, and I hope that I can contribute in my own special way. Um, so any day now, or any minute now, really, uh, <laughs> you, you'll become a father yeah. for the first time. Has that changed how you're viewing your role, your responsibility, your, your will to want to do this job, to want to run for office. Has that changed already in some degree? So Zara and I found out uh, that, that, uh, that she was pregnant first couple months of, of the campaign. And um, I make no money doing this. I mean, we just moved into my in-laws house. Uh, and I mean, folks have been really supportive at Zara most of all. Um, she's a resident physician and, you know, I've been away uh, so much. And, you know, I, I, I feel very derelict in my duties as a, a, a father helping my partner prepare for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zara said something that, uh, you know, I'll never forget. You know, we, we talked about this. I said, look, I, I can pull out of this race. I can go and, um, you know, make some money and like be a, a, a decent man. Um, and she said, you know, the, the single best thing you can do for this little girl is go out and win this election because I want to raise my daughter in a place where it doesn't matter that she's ethnically half Indian and half Egyptian uh, or a woman. I want to tell her honestly when I look her in the eye that you can do anything you want uh, in this country of ours. And uh, for damn sure, I'm going to do everything I can to fight for that kind of an America. Um, And so it's very grounding. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I meet my daughter for the first time. I know it's going to change my life. I know that... uh, I'm going to have a whole set of feels that I've never had before. Um, But I hope that I can look her in the eye and say I did everything I could um, to make her life just that much better. And, you know, in the ways that uh, I hope to empower her, I hope that my country and my state empower her like I empower her and that I hope to support her, that my country and my state support her like I hope to support her. Um, And I hope that, you know, when I tell her she can do anything she wants, um, that she looks around her and says, you know what? That's true. Uh, and if I, my doing this um, is part of that, uh, then that's really meaningful to me. But even beyond that, right, like my daughter is going to be deeply privileged. Um, both of her, her parents are doctors. Um, I, you know, we've, we've gone to great schools and uh, we make good money. And um, at least Sara does now. I was going to say, yeah, yeah let's not, that's <laughs> um, not a we right now. But, you know, and she's being for, born into a, in a, into a two-parent household of, of parents who are really excited to have her. Yeah. Um, You're saying she's the exception to most kids in America To right many now. kids. Yeah. And, you know, I think about a little boy. I, I brought him up earlier. But this, this kid fundamentally changed my perspective on what public health and government were supposed to be three weeks into my role in Detroit. Um, and, you know, she's privileged. And this boy's not. And so much of the work that I hope we can do is work that empowers <clears throat> people like my daughter, but even more so gives kids like this, this boy Demarius a fighting chance at a, at a dignified and uh, beautiful life because he's not any less than, than my daughter is. And uh, he deserves even more because he comes uh, from a place that hasn't provided that for him. Um, that's the work, right? I mean, that, that, is, that is what we do it for. Uh, we have and a lot of conversations. Work, that's the work that you have ahead of you, a long road now, because we're speaking yeah. several months before your primary right. next August. Uh, and you've got a crowded field too. So a lot of work to do, but as you say, you have the momentum. 
We do. So we will see. We'll be tracking your race from here. You know, the nice thing about uh, about having parents who are immigrants is that you are never, ever told that it's time to rest. So it's not going to be time to rest for a long time. So Abdul Al-Sayed, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each of our episodes is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable five days before they're released. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we have made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. And don't forget, episodes are released five days early on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.